Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. North Charleston residents have been calling for a racial bias audit of their police department for years. Community members have said for a long time that officers over-police black and brown residents in North Charleston. This is also the community where Walter Scott, a 50-year-old black man, was gunned down while trying to flee an officer. That was six years ago. A racial bias audit just got underway there last October, and findings were presented to the community this month. Today, we'll be talking with breaking news and public safety reporter Steve Garrison about that audit's findings, what changes could be made at the police department to address racial disparities in policing, and what residents had to say about it. We also have an important update on a story we've previously covered on this podcast, the death of Jamal Sutherland, a 31-year-old mental health patient who died while deputies attempted to force him from his cell to attend a bond hearing in January. My name is Steve Garrison. and I'm a quick response reporter for the Post and Courier. So recently, an audit came out through the North Charleston Police Department. Can you explain some of the context around why this is something residents have been asking for? You know, depending on who you ask, I think race relations in the city, particularly between black residents and the police, have been an issue for decades. I think if you go back to 2015 and the shooting of Walter Scott really kicked off, I think, efforts to get racial bias audit done or to try to address kind of the systemic issues that have existed in problems with the police department. And then obviously in 2019, the Charleston Police Department conducted its own racial bias audit and some reforms did come out of that process. You know, obviously last year we had George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests here. Talking to community activists and residents, that event kind of opened the possibility for both city officials and for residents to realize that something was not working, the status quo was not working. But I believe that was kind of what precipitated the city's decision to seek this racial bias audit. So just to start out, what were some of those key kind of headlining findings from the report? The biggest finding was that racial disparities do exist in how police interactions with minority community members, but in particular black residents. They found that in arrest data, they found it in use of force, they found it in field interviews, and also citation and traffic stop information. And so the biggest recommendation, the one that was kind of highlighted at these community meetings, is that the police department needs to do a further analysis to determine whether these disparities were caused by or are caused by racial bias, whether it's you know conscious or unconscious. And so that was the big one. But there is a lot of recommendations for changes to the department, some small, some large. One of the other recommendations that they review traffic stops uh, to address community concerns that particularly black residents are being stopped in their communities. Another suggestion is that the, the school resource officer program needs to be refocused on mentorship and engagement. Interviews with law enforcement officers that were conducted as part of the racial bias audit found that school resource officers feel like they're they're more engaged in enforcement of law rather than working with the children that they're supposed to be building a relationship with. One of the recommendations that came out of the report that caught my eye was issues with how officers speak with Hispanic residents. It seems like there's an issue with translation, a lack of bilingual uh, officers. And so, you know, North Charleston police officers have been relying on Google Translate to speak with Hispanic residents and also using children to translate for older community members. And the researcher said that was, a, you know, a pretty significant problem and something that needed to be addressed as well. And another thing the report found that a couple of city council members, uh, you know, called a red flag was that North Charleston officers weren't sold on the concept of community-oriented policing. 
Could you explain exactly what community-oriented policing is? Community-oriented policing, it's a philosophy that emphasizes community partnerships, organizational transformation, and problem-solving. Specifically, the concept that drives it is that law enforcement alone cannot solve kind of the societal issues that they've been tasked with trying to solve. Crime is caused by many different factors. Police need to engage with other partners in the community to try to address the systemic issues that drive a lot of that criminal behavior. It's kind of about decentralizing police decision-making, you know, giving patrol officers, you know, empowering them to make decisions in their community, to, to make decisions on the street that perhaps they wouldn't be able to otherwise. And finally, it, it's emphasized a, a kind of analytical problem-solving approach to uh, policing issues, you know, a particularly data-driven kind of problem-solving. That was an interesting point of that report, too. And I'm, I'm wondering, did the researchers say how they knew or how they realized that not all officers were on board with this concept of community-oriented policing? Yeah, researchers from CNA had conducted interviews with sworn personnel as well as non-sworn personnel at the police department. And talking with law enforcement officers became apparent that some of them didn't really understand community-oriented policing, could not identify training that they had gone through that was specifically related to community-oriented policing. And they also seemed to believe that it was the sole responsibility of the neighborhood resource officers to, to kind of engage in the community in that way, that it wasn't, you know, their specific responsibility to do so. What do we know about CNA and how were the findings presented to the community when finished. CNA is a, a nonprofit organization that's based out of Virginia. They conducted the racial bias audit for the city of Charleston as well in 2019. Once they completed their report, and it should be said it's, it's a preliminary report right now, but once the preliminary report was completed, they had three community meetings last week to kind of present their findings and highlight some of their key findings as well as suggestions for how North Charleston can address problems that they identified. You attended these community meetings where these researchers presented the findings directly to the public. This was open to the public for residents. And first, I'm just curious what those meetings were like. Who attended them? How well attended were they? The attendees were mostly white for the first two meetings and um, mostly black for the third meeting. But overall, all three meetings were pretty sparsely attended, which was a point of frustration for a lot of people who did attend. While you were uh, attending these meetings, what did black residents have to say about the report? What they mostly expressed was frustration. You know, they were frustrated that these issues haven't been addressed previously, that they've been going on for so long. I think there was some resentment that the report was capturing things that they have been saying for years. It seemed like certainly people want these things to change, but they're skeptical whether the department actually can change. Yeah, there was a a woman that you quoted in in a story really directly speaking to that, you know, saying that they were being presented with data that really was just confirming something that has been known for a long time. I'm wondering, was there any direct response to that, any direct response to that sentiment of what could this audit do besides, for a lot of people, give them numbers to information that they really already knew? Yeah, the CNA researchers who presented, they said this is the start of the process. They plan on working with the city police department for the next year on implementing the recommendations they've made, and they will be releasing 
quarterly reports about that progress. And then finally, at the, the end of the process, they'll be issuing a final report, um, basically outlining what changes the police department did or did not make. And so, you know, they acknowledge that they, they can't force the police department to, to address the problems that they've highlighted, but they won't hold back if the police department doesn't do anything. Those final reports will be honest. One thing that the report addressed was something called pretextual traffic stops. Can you explain what that means, what that is, and how this audit found that North Charleston's officers have been using them? Pretextual traffic stop is basically like a fishing expedition. Police will stop a a vehicle for a minor traffic violation, and they do that as kind of a, a pretext to search for a more significant wrongdoing. It's a common law enforcement tactic, but it's been criticized because it can lead to racial profiling and it can also destroy community trust. Through the community listening sessions, they, they heard a lot of talk about these issues with pretextual traffic stops. It also came up quite a bit at the meetings themselves, residents talking about how they were, you know, uh, repeatedly stopped by law enforcement officers for taillights that were out, license plate lights that weren't working or weren't functioning. And they felt like they were basically being harassed in their own communities by law enforcement officers. It's important to note that it was a pretextual traffic stop that preceded Walter Scott's shooting. He was stopped for a broken taillight. And there were a few other disparities found in the audit. What were some of the other ones they found? Yeah, so they also found disparities with arrests. They found disparities with field interviews, uh, basically, you know, officers who were going out and canvassing the neighborhood during investigations, disproportionately black residents who were being interviewed as part of that process. They found it with use of force. So it was kind of police interactions across the board for which there were disparities. You know, a way for residents to voice their issues with these disparities is through the complaint process. What did researchers find and what did they say about how this can be improved? Yeah, so the researchers found that there were significant concerns in the black community regarding the complaint process. They were concerned about reprisals from law enforcement officers if they did file a complaint. And they also just felt like the, the complaints weren't being followed through on. One of the recommendations CNA has made is that North Charleston Police Department inform residents when their, their complaint has been processed, when it's been completed. They aren't currently doing Has the chief of police in North Charleston had anything to say about this audit or any response? And also curious if if in these community meetings, people had anything to say about him or his leadership. He deferred to the mayor regarding comments on it. But the report notes that community members seem to have a lot of respect for Chief Burgess and believe that he is a good leader, but there seems to be some real concern about whether one person can actually effectuate the change that needs to happen in the police department. You know, it's kind of a two-edged sword, the fact that he is so well-regarded. They pointed out that a lot of times, instead of filing a formal complaint, people will express those complaints directly to the chief. And the problem is, is that, you know, obviously the chief is a pretty busy guy and he shouldn't be responsible for, for addressing every single complaint that comes through to the department. But also, you know, it, complaints need to be recorded, they need to be investigated, you know, in an official manner. It can't just be chief single-handedly trying to address all these problems. You've spoken some about Walter Scott and, of course, how his death is something that, especially in North Charleston, is really always present in these discussions. It's really something that that people are thinking about. Denise Scott, Walter Scott's sister-in-law, attended these community meetings. Did she have anything to say about the audit? Did she speak publicly at any of those meetings? She expressed frustration with the poor attendance at the community meetings, particularly from community leaders. 
she felt like, you know, a little bit that the community was letting Walter Scott down, letting his memory down by not attending these meetings. You know, she said she was hopeful about the process, that it really could change relationships in the community between police and black residents. But for that to happen, residents need to be engaged in the process. And she didn't feel like that was the case. So what's next? Obviously, we have this preliminary finding with a lot of new information about the North Charleston Police Department. Yeah, so the CNA researchers, they said that they're going to continue, I think, to, to take in input from community members, and they expect to have a final report issued within a month or two. Once that final report is completed, which will have a kind of timeline for for when the police department needs to address the recommendations that they've made. Once that final report is completed, then they'll be working with the department to to implement those recommendations, and it's expected we'll be getting regular reports from them about that implementation process. Were you able to get a sense from these meetings, since this has been the, the primary way up to this point that the community, right, has been able to hear about these findings and, and share their thoughts. Was there a sense, at least from at least from the people who did attend, did you get a sense of whether there was a feeling that this was headed in the right direction, any hopefulness or still more hesitancy? Just what was that that sense that maybe you walked away from those meetings with? Some of the folks I talked to individually did express kind of cautious optimism, but trust is a process. It takes a long time to build up, and it's something that's going to have to be earned. So I think for a lot of community residents who spoke at the meeting and I spoke with, it's kind of a wait and see. Maybe this is the start of, you know, improved relations, but maybe not. There's been a lot of disappointments, I think, for North Charleston residents. And so whether they expect to see something come out of this process is, I think, up in the air. Hi, I'm Avery Wilkes, a projects reporter for the Post and Courier Columbia. As journalists, we work hard to hold powerful people accountable for the decisions that they make and how they affect others. And we have a track record of investigations that have brought about real, tangible change in our community. But that kind of watchdog reporting isn't free. It's time-consuming and expensive. To pay for it, we need people to subscribe and support journalism with real dollars. Help us keep going. Learn how to subscribe at postingcourier.com slash subscribe. We've previously reported on this podcast about the death of Jamal Sutherland, a 31-year-old mentally ill black man who died at the Charleston County Jail on January 5th as two deputies tried to remove him forcefully from his jail cell for a bond hearing. Those deputies, Brian Houle and Lindsay Fickett, had used pepper spray, tasers, and physical force. Graphic video of Sutherland's death was released by the Charleston County Sheriff's Office in May, prompting protests and calls for the deputies to be fired and criminally charged. Sheriff Kristen Graziano fired the deputies several days after releasing that footage. But activists and community members have been waiting on news from Ninth Circuit Solicitor Scarlett Wilson about whether or not her office would charge them. On Monday, Wilson announced her decision. It's a travesty. Jamal Sutherland should not have died the way he did. And as Mr. Rainey has outlined, and as you will see in this report, and as you've seen in the video, the body-worn camera videos, this looks excessive. In South Carolina, that's not the standard, and that needs to change.
And each of you who's followed anything in the past five years know that I've been calling for that change for quite some time. Uh, We are way behind in many areas in South Carolina, and, and this is one of them. I understand that people will have a hard time with the decision not to prosecute. Um, legally, though, once you see the analysis, once you see all of the facts that go into these decisions, you'll know that there was no real choice as a prosecutor. So we have the big answer that a lot of people have been waiting on, that these officers are not going to be charged. But what was the reasoning given? For not charging these officers? The lowest offense that the solicitor's office looked at was involuntary manslaughter. And to prove involuntary manslaughter, Solicitor Wilson said that she was going to have to show that the officers had a conscious disregard for Sutherland's life during the cell extraction. And she felt she couldn't meet that standard. She pointed to the fact that Deputy Hull had specifically talked to his superiors and said that he didn't feel comfortable conducting the cell extraction, but his superiors told him he had to do it. You know, she points out any kind of defense attorney would be able to to take those facts and show that there was a regard for his safety. And then in the actions they took and the force that they used, the taser, the, the OC spray or pepper spray, the physical force they used, she points out that was negligent. They used force in a negligent manner, but they were trained to do that. Unfortunately, the, the issues at the sheriff's office with how force was used by officers go much deeper than these two officers. So this decision also came with a report that speaks to kind of what you're saying, that these issues run very deep within the sheriff's office, at least in the in the view of the, the expert that she turned to for this report, that there are systemic failures that contributed to Sutherland's death. What were some of those those failures that, that were pointed out in this report? So it was a use of force report prepared by Gary Rainey, who is a uh, correctional use of force expert hired by the solicitor's office to look into Sutherland's death. So as part of that investigation, you know, he looked at how the officers were trained, he looked at policies and procedures, and also looked at, you know, evidence related to supervision. And what he found was that the sheriff's office was deficient in every regard, in every one of those areas. From 2008 to 2018, an agency was hired to, to train SOG officers or special operations group officers in, you know, using force at the facility. And he found that what that contractor did was train them to use overly aggressive tactics. They weren't trained in de-escalation. Cool and uh, Fickett didn't seem to understand that they should act differently with mentally ill inmates as opposed to non-mentally ill inmates. And so the training was deficient. And finally, yeah, there were issues with supervision. Some of the superiors at the jail seemed to be aware that SOG was using force in a way that did not comply with the sheriff's office policies, and they looked the other way. So have any of the policies at the jail changed since Sutherland's death and since, really since his death became more publicly known, right, with the release of this footage, protests and calls for change. Sheriff Graziano this this weekend, she announced some changes that she has made in response to Sutherland's death. Those include that, you know, citizens that are in a mental crisis, after they're arrested, they'll be evaluated by a crisis unit before being booked into the jail. Detention officers have also been directed to de-escalate and disengage when an inmate becomes uncooperative. Finally, she uh, told officers to follow the policy as it's written that if an inmate refuses to, to attend a bond court hearing, that's their right to do so. They don't have to be forced to go. 
So even though this is an answer that people have really been waiting on, this question of whether or not these officers would be charged, this story is still very much ongoing, right? Before we sat down to record this, you're saying, I'm still very much in the thick of reporting on this. What's happening with this case? What are some of the things that that we are continuing to follow and and report about? Including, you know, the uh, use of force expert, Rainey, he pointed out that if this was a systemic issue, likely there were other instances where force was used excessively. And certainly that's something that we're we're looking at. And also we're looking at this operator that was at the jail, was trainer at the jail from 2008 to 2018, and what kind of role they played Sutherland's death. At a news conference after Wilson's announcement, Amy Sutherland, Jamal's mother, said that the state's jails have no understanding of how to properly care for inmates. There isn't an excessive force law on the books in South Carolina, something which the family's attorney said should change so that more officers are held accountable. My other sons, nobody was surprised. Nobody. They just said, we knew it. What kind of state you live in that somebody's murdered, and the family said, we knew they weren't going to do anything. State of South Carolina, state of South Carolina, with their racist laws, the jail has no concept of taking care of anybody. Their job is to kill, trained to kill. And so, somebody did their job. If they did it a thousand times before, this time, you kill my child. You killed my child, and I'm going to talk about it till the day I go. For more on Jamal Sutherland's case, listen to our May 20th episode, which we'll include in today's show notes. There's also more coverage of this case from our reporters, which we encourage you to read. We'll share links to additional stories in today's show notes as well. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for this show, we'd love to hear from you. We'd also like to hear your thoughts on the news stories we're discussing every week. You can email us at understandsc at postandcareer.com or message us on Twitter at understandsc. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.